We sit down and pick up the Bible in front of you, and we're going to read from Luke uh, chapter 24, which is on page 1062. We're going to start reading at verse 36, so verse 36 of Luke 24, and in the section just before, Luke has been telling about the two disciples from, who were on their way to Emmaus, and unbeknown to them had the Lord Jesus walked alongside them and then gave them this amazing Bible study. And then they'd rushed back to Jerusalem and told the disciples about this. And so we pick up the story at verse 36. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? gave them a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. So, uh, I wonder what disturbs your sense of peace. Is it the big things? You are concerned about the environment, and and rightly so. We live in a very delicately balanced uh, world. Or is it big issues, some of the ones that we mentioned this morning? Is it more personal issues, you know, your work, your career, your direction in life? Are you unsettled? Or relationships, or the lack of them? I wonder if you're a young man, you're in danger of becoming an incel. Something I, a category I read about yesterday in the papers. An incel, I-N-C-E-L, is an involuntary celibate. Now, mostly young men who feel rejected by women and who take to the internet to voice their revenge. Some, like the 31-year-old I read about, were KHHV. You'll never guess. So, I'll tell you. Kiss less, handhold less, hug less, virgin. And these guys sound not the kind of guys you want to meet, ladies. (laughs) In case you needed telling. Or maybe your lack of peace is down to the age-old reason of guilt, moral guilt. You've done something wrong. Your conscience has has pricked you and you feel bad about it. It's into that kind of world that the risen Jesus comes with these words, peace be with you. And he spoke these words to a group who had dedicated the previous three years of their lives to following him, fully engaged in his cause, and yet at the last hour, when it really mattered, they failed him. They didn't stand with him in his hour of need. They, in fact, deserted him. They feared for their lives. They thought they may too end up crucified. 
and they wondered what the future might hold for them. So they scarpered. And yet, this encounter with the risen Jesus seems to have changed them, as it has done the lives of millions ever since. People with a deep sense of shame and guilt claim to know a personal peace, whereas others in the same situation disintegrate. For others, it is in the middle of some chronic terminal illness that they or their loved ones are going through that they claim to know what they call the peace of the Lord. And they don't go to pieces. For others, it is in the middle of war that they know peace. For others, it is in the face of an uncertain, if not a gloomy future, that they have every confidence in the one who is in charge of all events and they are able to remain calm, trusting, at peace about whatever the future might hold. How is it that they have arrived at such a point? Is such peace possible for me? Well, let's go back to basics. How did the disciples in the turmoil of first century Palestine days, days after the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, find peace? What was it that changed them from feeling guilty for ditching Jesus, fearful of their own lives, and wondering where they were going to go from here? And I think I've detected three reasons for their peace. And quite unlike my usual style, they do seem naturally to begin with the letter E, which may help us to remember them. First, there's the evidence for the risen Jesus. They were certain that he was for real. And second, there was the explanation. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures and to show them that what was going on was not some kind of accidental event. It had been long planned. And thirdly, he made provision that they would be enabled to carry on knowing his peace, whatever life would throw up for them. So first things first, the evidence. The first thing that strikes me is the ring of truth in this report. It's not, hello Jesus, great to see you. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. And we'd all be if we saw somebody who was very close to us, who we saw die two days ago, and now, um, well, two days ago, we'd have seen them die, we'd have seen them buried, we'd have been quite cut up about it, and... uh, somebody who looks exactly like him turns up today, this evening, in front of us. Well, you'd have been shocked. In fact, you'd be scared out of your wits. And then the first thing that would have come to your mind would have been, it's a ghost, it's a phantom, it's an apparition. Or, if you're a bit cooler, you may have think, I'm hallucinating 
you know, what is it? Well, Jesus anticipates that understandable scepticism. Verse 39, look at my hands and my feet, he says. It's me, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then in verse 42, he ate a piece of fish in front of them. Ghosts don't eat either. That's if they exist anyway, which I doubt. And hallucinations, for that matter, are individual experiences. They are not group phenomenon. You don't have people in a group all having the same hallucination. So no doubt, then, that this group, 11 disciples, the two who'd met Jesus on the road to Emmaus, an unspecified number of others, which exceeds 500, that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they'd known and followed for three years, who they'd seen executed and buried, now in some sense is alive and is in front of them. And they'd been left in no doubt that he was dead. The Roman centurion, who thought Jesus had died rather soon, you know, six hours on the cross, was a very quick time to die. Well, he wasn't sure, so he made sure by sticking his spear straight through Christ's heart. There was no doubt about the burial. Now, you'd know exactly. If you went to a funeral of somebody who mattered to you, it wouldn't matter whether there were a thousand graves in that cemetery. You would have no doubt where that grave was if you returned to it. And no doubt that the tomb was empty. The guards had ensured that no one could get in or out. But then, if the authorities, the Jews or the Romans, had stolen the body, wouldn't they have produced it? And Christianity would not have got off the ground. It would have uh, died then. And tomb robbers. You know, well, we've read too much 19th century detective stuff because that's the time when they used to nick bodies for the new medical schools which were starting off and they needed dissection to practice on. Now, in the first century, if they raided tombs, they were after valuable things, not the body. Now, although Jesus was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man, he himself, the only thing of value he was buried with was the linen cloth that he was buried in. And that's the one thing that was left behind. So no tomb raiders. It is amazing, it is astonishing, it is unique even, that this Jesus wasn't a resuscitated corpse like Lazarus or the widow of Nain's son, for example, but he was a resuscitated and a transformed corpse. There was no body left behind. What happened was this. At the point of death at 3 p.m. on the Friday, the body of Jesus was taken down and placed in Joseph's tomb, and the soul of Jesus went to paradise. Early on the Sunday morning, before sunrise, The body of Jesus was taken by God and transformed into a glorified body, the kind of existence that we believers expect to enjoy 
when there is the new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. And this, um, res- this resurrected and transformed body of Jesus was then reunited with his soul. Now there's no doubt that for those who encountered him, the risen Christ was for real. And today many of the most eminent historians and experienced judges who have ever lived come to the conclusion that he did rise from the dead. A former Lord Chief Justice, Lord Darling, came to this conclusion. He said, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Another professor of law who lost his son to leukemia at the age of 21 was asked what difference belief in the resurrection meant to him, and he said an enormous amount. He made the cautious comment that lawyers do, that you can never be 100% certain of events in the past, but, he said, I believe that on the balance of the probability of the evidence that Christ rose from the dead, that is the faith that my son lived by and I live by, and one day we will be reunited. The risen Christ was for real. He was for them, he has been for others, and he can, of course, be for us. That's the evidence, the explanation. Once they'd let the great truth sink in, the risen Jesus then goes on to explain things to them. As with many things, you have to see them before you really register them. They had been told numerous times by Jesus what was going to happen, that he must suffer, be betrayed, be killed, and that three days later he would rise again. But imagine you were told that stuff if you were one of the disciples. It's way outside of your frame of reference. You would not be able to hold it in. You would just dismiss it. It's fantasy. You know, you've never heard of anything like that. You would not be able to, as they say, process it and accommodate it. If we were told that somebody who we knew died last Tuesday, was brain stem dead, and then on Friday they were going to come back to life, we wouldn't believe that. Because it's outside of our frame of reference. But to be transformed in the process, so not only can we eat, talk and touch them, but they can appear and disappear in front of our eyes, it's, gonna, it's just not going to happen. We don't take it on board. And yet it did happen. And they did then after the events, of course, because they'd seen it with their very eyes. They were able to incorporate it into their understanding of life. And they had to rethink their worldview. What was previously beyond the realms of possibility was now firmly within it. And what did it all mean? Well, Jesus explains. Look at verse 44 and following. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. 
the Christ, the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. The first half of that he has said at least three times in Luke's gospel or Matthew or Mark's gospel. Probably many more times than that. But at least three. Well now, I don't suppose they grasped it. But now they do, because it has happened in front of them. And he tells you, this has all been planned. I expected all this to happen, Jesus says. And you have now seen it before your very eyes. I understand that there are at least 61 specific predictions in the Old Testament relating to Jesus, all written hundreds of years before he lived. And nobody disputes that they were written hundreds of years beforehand. I further understand that the chances of all these predictions coming true in one man is about 10 to the power of 17. That's 10 with 17 noughts after it, which translates, apparently, into covering whales from north to south in 10p coins. You mark one of them, you shuffle the whole lot up, you lay them all out again, and then you get a blindfold man to try and find it at the first go. In other words, ridiculous odds. Of course, many of the predictions, like the time and the place of his birth, Jesus could not fix, could he? And that is astonishing in itself, isn't it? It was all planned. Nobody was forced to do anything, and yet it all fitted into the long-term plans and purposes of God himself. And what's more astonishing is this. Why did the Christ, why did God on earth have to suffer? Why did God, when he came to live among us, why did he end up suffering? You'd not expect that of God, and yet this is at the heart of the Christian faith. All religions recognise that there is in some sense something wrong between us and God. However we define him, there is that kind of sense. It's produced by conscience, and it's verified by our own honest assessment of ourselves, that we are not as we should be, and that means there is some barrier, a definite degree of unease about letting God get too close to us. Somehow our built-in conscience tells us that. And you know yourself, if you were fearful for your health, for example, you thought your days might be numbered, that all the wrong you've ever said and done and thought, maybe that comes before your mind, all the things you may have suppressed somehow burst through your conscience. They surface. If you know you're soon to be meeting God, I've no doubt that your opinion of yourself would be more accurate than it might otherwise be. The reason being is that we know 
that he's surreal and that we're in the wrong. And we know he has to punish wrongdoing because wrongdoing is always against other people. And God is the God of justice and he will speak and act on behalf of the innocent. But where Christianity differs from all other religions is that we realise that there is nothing we can do to avert that punishment. Fortunately, God knows that and has decided that in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he would come to earth to live and die and to avert the punishment of God for sin on us by diverting it to himself. It is the great exchange. He takes our sin and gets punished while we take his right relationship with God and we get a life, an eternal life. Marvellous. But how do we know it's true that it works? Well, because he's explained it in advance of the event and afterwards, and because he has provided the evidence by rising from the dead and being witnessed. So how should we respond? Well, in repentance, which means an about turn, which means we orientate ourselves away from ourselves and to Christ, and that we submit to his authority. We follow him and we do what he says. It's not negotiable. You can't follow Christ and then decide to disagree with whole chunks of what he says in the Bible because he endorses the Old Testament and he makes provision for the New Testament. That's not on. Submitting to baptism in the name of Jesus is a way of expressing that new allegiance. But it's also the sign of God washing us clean giving us a fresh start as an illustration of the forgiveness of sins. But then we're not alone. The disciples had to wait until Christ ascended to heaven to receive his spirit, who would enable them, in their case, to recall all that he had said and done in the previous three years. And then, in the case of the apostles, would be inspired to record it for our benefit and the benefit of others who've lived in the last 2,000 years. These events that they were witnesses of, they were unique in doing so. But they recorded them so that we might recognise their truth and repent and believe. Not only forgiveness of sins is granted to us, but also eternal life, which begins now through life in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus living in us, and takes us all the way through until we are in the presence of God when we die, and our souls go to paradise, and we await the new creation when we will get a new body and a tangible existence once again. And as many of us today would be able to stand up and testify, it gives us the peace of Christ. 
in the middle of a whole variety of circumstances which might otherwise thoroughly disturb us may well make us very unsettled indeed and yet because we know that we are secure in the one who does control everything and we believe his promises because the things he's promised have come true we can trust him for the promise that he has forgiven us and granted us eternal life and will carry us through to himself we can hold on to that we are secure we are at peace whatever happens as it were outside us or to us it's like being in a strong castle that is impregnable in many ways we're secure in Christ let us pray Heavenly Father, we do recognize something of this unsettled nature and uncertainty of how you might find us if we faced you. And we pray that we might understand this very simple message that Christ's resurrection from the dead was evidence that the cross worked, that we can be forgiven, that we can be at peace with him, that Jesus had it all planned billions of years beforehand but as far as we're concerned recorded in the 2,000 years before he appeared and we thank you that not only is there evidence not only is there explanation but we also can experience your peace in our lives through your presence in it if we only turn ourselves to you and commit ourselves to you Amen.